Welcome to the Qalam Institute podcast. You're listening to Lives of the Prophets by Mufti Hussein Kamani. Imagine spending two weeks, every day, morning and evening, with the Prophet That's the vision behind Sirah Intensive. Every year, over a hundred people from all over the world come together to spend two weeks immersed in learning about the life and character of the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad Sign up and get more information at sirahintensive.com. That's S-E-E-R-A-H intensive.com. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah so we are currently studying the class on the lives of the prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And before we actually get into the lives of the prophets, I thought it was important that we'd cover, we'd cover some introductory discussions. Last week we covered some very important introductory discussions. We ended by discussing the point, what is a prophet? And we were going through a legal definition of what a prophet is. And towards the end part of the class, we were discussing how a prophet must be male in gender. And there are many reasons for that. And there is another opinion held by a group of scholars, even though they are few, that there are certain females who are also scholars. And they quoted the ayah, وَأَوْحَيْنَا إِلَىٰ أُمِّ مُوسَىٰ أَنَا That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that we reveal to the mother of Musa alayhi salam to nurse him, and they use the, the word used in the ayah is وَأَوْحَيْنَا wahi Revelation. And I explained there that the word wahi can be used in multiple forms. Either it could be used in its technical form, which means revelation from Allah to a messenger, or it can also be used in a literal form, which means to um, convey something very secretly, al-isharatul khafi, or to inspire an individual. And I last week I mentioned the example of um, the ant and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala communicated to it that Sulaiman alayhi salam and his army were on the way. But another example which would probably be more direct and more clear, and I wanted to give that example before I start off with today's discussion, is the story of the honeybee in the Qur'an. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when making um, mention of the honeybee in the Qur'an, He says, وَأَوْحَى رَبُّكَ إِلَى النَّحْلِ أَنِتَّخِذِي مِنَ الْجِبَالِ بُيُوتًا that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that we, and the word I'm going to use is وَأَوْحَى rabbuka, And Allah made wahi to the honeybee. So we know here that um, obviously one of the conditions for a prophet is that they must be a human being. A honeybee cannot be a messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if a honeybee cannot be a messenger of Allah, therefore the word used here, awha, which means wahi, has to come in a greater context. It has to have a greater meaning. And obviously the scholars, when interpreting this, say that this is referring to an inspiration, the inspiration that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave to this creation, that this is how you will produce your honey. So if that's how the word is used there, then this is how the word is used here too. So that's an answer given to the objection made on the issue. Now, today inshallah we're going to cover some other very important topics that must be understood in order for us to appreciate the stories of the Prophets. So the first thing we're going to cover today is what is the purpose of the Prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? What's their purpose? What's their objective? So there are many things listed amongst the purpose and the objectives of the messengers of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I want to list out eight of them for you today inshallah. The first thing is that they come with the objective to clarify for humanity the purpose of creation. 
to bring people back to the fundamental question, why were you created? Because by asking that question, by posing that question to people, it gives people the opportunity to be objective with life. Why am, I, why am I even here? Why was I created? Why do I have a soul in my body? Why am I not lying in the graveyard? Why am I non-existent? Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala send me to the world? Why am I in this masjid right now? To question the purpose of life. And the messengers came for that. And in the Quran you'll find again and again that um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will convey the answer to this question. وَمَا أُمِرُوا إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُ اللَّهَ مُخْلِصِينَ لَهُ الدِّينَ حُنَفَاءَ وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ مَا أُرِيدُ مِنْهُمْ مِنْ رِزْقٍ وَمَا أُرِيدُ أَنْ يُطْعِمُونَ There are many places in the Qur'an where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that we created mankind for our worship so that they may be sincere for our sake and so on and so forth. So they come to pose this question to people, why were you created? The second reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent prophets is to guide humanity from the worship of creation to the worship of the Creator. Because when you ask this question, why was I created? Why am I even alive? Someone can say, a higher being created me. Okay, that's great. So now we've come somewhere. So now once you've come to this agreement that a higher being created you, there are two, there are two possibilities. That higher being that created you is Allah or it's other than Allah. And if it's other than Allah, we have to deal with that too. So that way you know that your creator was only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in the Qur'an um, conveys to the people verses where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clearly obliterates, He destroys any possibility of a creator other than Him. So for example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhannas, dhuriba matharun fastami'ula. O mankind, Allah is giving you an example. So listen to this example very carefully. Whatever it is you worship other than Allah, if all of those people, all of those beings, all of those idols were to gather together, they can't even create a fly. Let alone creating a fly. Even if the fly was to come and take something from your idol, your idol does not have the ability to even prevent the idol from, from even preventing the fly from taking it. So Allah says, if they can't create, they can't even prevent. Then Allah closes off the ayah by saying, Look how weak the seeker is that he's coming to the idol. And even more than that, weakness lies within the idol himself. Or the idol herself. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ma qadri. They do not value Allah. They do not understand the position of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the way they should have understood who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is. Therefore, we have another incident in the works of history. Ibn Kathir wrote a very famous history piece known as Al Bidaya wa Nihaya. It's not just a piece, it's actually a masterpiece. He covers the whole history from the beginning of uh, creation right until his period. And even after that, until the Day of Judgment, he brings some of the issues there. So, in there he narrates an incident that occurred while the Muslims were fighting against the Persians. And this battle that was about to take place between the Muslims and the Persians is known as the Battle of Qadisiyah, which is one of the greatest battles that took place in the history of Islam. The general of the Muslim army was Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas And the general from the Persian army, his name was Rustum. So before the actual battle took place, Rustum requested Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas to send someone to him so he can engage in negotiation. So 
Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas he sent multiple companions one at a time to go and negotiate. Mughira bin Shu'bah was one of them sent and so on. Now one of the people who um, Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas sent for the negotiating purposes was Rib'i bin Amir radiallahu ta'ala an. This Rib'i bin Amir radiallahu an, when he came to negotiate with Rustum, Rustum had told his men that you have to really baffle this guy with our wealth. We have to show him how much wealth we have and go all out. Show him everything. So he says that when I arrived there, there were guards gathered on either side, on each side of the, uh, the beautiful rug that was in front of me, which led all the way to the gate of the palace. And each of them were wearing beautiful soldier, beautiful armor and beautiful swords and nice expensive spears they had in their hand. And they were trying to wow Rib ibn Amr. Look how wealthy we are. Look how poor you guys are. How are you going to stand in a fight with us? Even though this wealth that we're showing right now isn't the wealth of our palaces, it's the wealth we brought with us to the battleground. This isn't our palace. This is just the wealth we brought to the battleground with us. Imagine you saw the wealth we have in our palaces. So Rib ibn Amr radiallahu anhu, when it came time for him to um, get off of the animal and start walking on the red carpet they had put in the middle, he took his animal and started riding it on the carpet. So they said to him, what are you doing? He said, well, if this is good for me, it's good for my animal too. And he brought it all the way to the front. And when he came inside, when it was time for him to enter into the room or the area where Rustum was, the Persian general, Rib'i ibn Amir, he was taking his animal and his sword inside with him, his spear. And they said, well, you can't take that inside. He said, I didn't come here, you asked me to come. And now that I've come, I've come on my terms. So either you talk with me like this, or otherwise I'm going. And they um, asked Rustum, and Rustum said, let him come in. When he came inside, he took a spear and speared it, plunged it right through the cushions that he had, right into the ground, and tied his donkey to it. Right? And then he sat on the ground and said to Rustum, let's talk. And when Rustum was looking at this man who has absolutely no care for you know, monetary valuables, right? who's just putting his spear through an expensive cushion, that's probably worth more than this individual must have owned, literally, because these are very expensive things. These people were big on showing their wealth. When he did this, Rustum asked him, Who are you and why have you come here? Why are you here? And what Rabbi ibn Amr responded with is nothing less than a historical statement. It's something that is quoted by many scholars and many books. They always make reference to this statement of Rabbi ibn Amr. And the reason is because he's a poor person who comes from the humble Muslim army, sitting in front of the emperor of the time, right? Not literally the emperor, but you know, the general, uh, the general of the army, who was more, more or less one of the wealthiest people alive at the time. And he's speaking to the Persian general, where the strength of their, of their empire is looking at him right in the eye and he's talking to him. So this isn't just some kid sitting on a keyboard on a YouTube comments area and just typing away. This is the, t- this is the time, right? It doesn't get any more bold than this. And when he's asked, what are you here for? He could have said 10 things. He could have said, I'm here to eat your samosas. Right? He could have said whatever he wanted to. But what he said was, he said, First of all, I'm not here because I want to be here. Allah sent us. So now that we're here from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there's only one way this is going to end. But why did Allah send us? We've come to take people out of the service and slavery of human beings to the slavery of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We've come to take them out of the narrow life they're caught in to a broad world that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created. 
And then he said, وَمِنْ جَوْرِ الْأَدْيَانِ إِلَىٰ عَدْلِ الْإِسْلَامِ We've come to liberate them from the oppression of their man-made religions and to bring them to the justice of the religion set by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he had this very lengthy discussion. At the end of it, he said to him, um, he gave him the offers, he said what was on the table, what had to be done, because they were there for offering purposes. Um, Rustum said to him that, okay, let me think about this issue for a little bit and let me consult my other uh, members. So Rabi' ibn Amr said, no problem, how many days would you like? You can have one day, two days. Rustum said, no, no, I was thinking of a few weeks at least, because I was going to write back to my superiors and this, that and the other. So Rabi' ibn Amr said to him, you have three days. Because that's what the Prophet ﷺ, he's putting his terms in front of this guy. You have three days to response. That's what the Prophet ﷺ told us, to give the enemy three days to make their decision. And at the end of three days, we will strike you. So for three days, I'm giving you the opportunity to make, this, to make the decision whatever you want to do. So um, Rustam asked him a very interesting question. He said to him, where did you get the authority to make such a heavy decision? Only three days, you're talking to me like this? Who do you think you are? Are you the general of the Muslim army? He said, I'm no general. But the Prophet ﷺ said to us, wahid. Believers are like one body. And one of them makes a promise, it's as if the entire ummah is making a promise. And no one can touch you after that once I've made the promise. Even though I may look like to be the poorest from them and the weakest from them in your eyes. Now, I want to come back to the statement of Rabi' ibn Amr anh. He said, we've come to liberate people from the slavery of human beings to the slavery of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is such a profound statement. Because when you actually think about it, isn't that the misery of life? Think about this. I really want you to think about the statement. And when I say slavery, don't think of ibadah as in sajda and worship. Just talk about, think about the concept of it. Aren't we all caught in the slavery of, ha- of mankind? You know, human beings are dictating to us what life should be, what a good phone is, what a good computer is, what kind of toothbrush we should have, what kind of shoes we should wear, what kind of clothes we should have, what's a good car, what isn't a good car. You know, I need to buy a house in a better neighborhood because they bought a house in another neighborhood. They have three kids, we need to have four kids, right? They have this car, we need to have that car. Isn't that what we're all locked into? Doesn't Rabi ibn Amr anh's message actually come directly at us where he's saying, The moment you stop worrying about slavery to mankind and you focus on your slavery to Allah, I kid you not, your life will become so much more simple. It'll be so much more enjoyable. Because you'll notice that when it comes to people, their expectations are such that you can never meet them. But when it comes to Allah, His expectation of us is very little. It's so little that you can take care of it. You know, the effort that you put into taking care of the expectations of creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if you were to compare that with the expectations of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, taking care of this would be a fraction of how much time and effort in your life you need to dedicate to taking care of this. And the sad part is that the time and effort you put into taking care of the expectations of people, it's very possible at the end of it, you won't even meet their expectations. You'll fail. But if you even give a fraction of that time to take care of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala demands of you, you will always be successful. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes that promise in the Quran, وَهَلْ جَزَاءُ الْإِحْسَانِ إِلَّا الْإِحْسَانِ وَالَّذِينَ جَاهَدُوا فِينَا لَنَهْدِيَنَّمْ سُبُلَنَا وَإِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُذِعُ وَجْلَ الْمُحْسِنِينَ There are so many ayat in the Quran where Allah says that you cannot fail if you make that sincere effort for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The third reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent messengers is to show humanity the right path that will lead them to Jannah and save them from the fire of hell. Showing them which things need to be done 
and which things need to be stayed away from. Imagine this, if I was told you, if I, was to tell, if I were to tell you that, hey, you know what, I need you to travel from here to Idaho. Now, many of us, um, we wouldn't know exactly where Idaho is. We know it's somewhere on the west of, uh, of Illinois, but that's it. Where is it exactly? I have no idea. Um, some of us, if, especially if it was someone like me who's not good at directions, I'd probably end up going north, south, east, have no idea that I have to even go west. Now, on the other hand, if I were to give you a car and put a GPS in there and program in there the destination, for you, traveling would be so much more easier. If you do not have a guide and you're on a journey, let alone meeting your destination, it's very possible you won't even leave the point of, the point of, the point of entry. You know where it starts? You might just roam around the city of Chicago going in different circles and won't even get anyone near Idaho. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala showered us with such a great favor by sending us messengers because they, they guide us towards where we need to go. And that is Jannah. They save us from where we shouldn't go, the fire of hell. The fourth thing is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent messengers so that they can guide us to a practical implementation of the faith. They show us actually how to live it. They don't just convey it to us, but they show us that, hey, you're supposed to pray the Hajjul Salah, this is what the Hajjul looks like. You're supposed to fast, this is what fasting looks like. You're supposed to do Hajj, this is what Hajj looks like. And within even, even within Hajj, the Prophet ﷺ gave so much concession to the companions. You know, there are three types of Hajj. For those of you who have gone for Hajj before, you'll know this. For those of you who haven't, there are three types of Hajj. Hajj Qiran, Hajj, hajj Tamattu, and Hajj Ifrad. Now, simply put, the most difficult out of these three is which one? Hajj Qiran. It's the most difficult one. And the uh, second most difficult one, depending again on your itinerary, but is Ifrat. The reason is because, and what makes these two more difficult is simply, uh, not simply, but more or less, that you stay in the state of Ihram for a longer period. Tamattu' is the easiest one. And that's why the word Tamattu' in Arabic means to take ease, to take benefit. فَمَنْ تَمَتَّعَ بِالْعُمْرَةِ إِلَى الْحَجِّ فَمَا اسْتَيْسَرَ مِنَ الْحَجِّ when the Prophet ﷺ performed Hajj, when the Prophet performed Hajj, which Hajj did he perform? He performed Qiran, the toughest one, the most difficult one. But at the same time, what did the Prophet tell the companions? He said whoever, because he thought, he, the Prophet ﷺ knew that if he did Qiran, what was everyone else going to do? They were going to do Qiran as well. Whether they had the ability or not, everyone was going to do it. So the Prophet openly made an announcement that no one else can do Hajj Qiran unless you have permission from me. And everyone else was made to do tamattu'. Can you imagine that? How humble and loving the Prophet was. Because he didn't want the Muslims that would come until the Day of Judgment to be forced or obliged or feel guilty over not being able to do Qiran. The Prophet said, everyone else should do tamattu'. And if anyone wants to do Qiran, they have to come and take an exemption from me. Ali radiallahu anh, when he came for Hajj, that, that same year by the way, when he came for Hajj, he joined the Prophet ﷺ in Mecca. The reason is because Ali radiallahu anh, at that particular time was residing in Yemen. He was residing south of Mecca Mukarramah. The Prophet came from Medina, which is north of Mecca. They met together in Mecca Mukarramah. When he arrived there, everyone told Ali radiallahu anh, that the Prophet said no to Qiran for everyone. Right? He made everyone do Tumatu. There are only a handful of people that are allowed to do Qiran. So Ali radiallahu anh said, okay, let me figure this out. He went and met the Prophet. The Prophet asked him a question. Ali, which hajj are you doing? So Ali radiallahu anh, he was so smart, subhanAllah. You know, the Prophet referred to him as Madinatul Ilm, the city of knowledge, because he was so intellectual. He wanted to do the same hajj as the Prophet, and he knew that he had to come up with a quick answer. So he said, a messenger of Allah, when I was crossing the miqat, when I was crossing the boundary at the point where I needed to make the intention, I said, oh Allah, I am going to do the hajj that the Prophet is doing. I'm going to do the hajj that the Prophet is doing. The Prophet ﷺ smiled at him and said, Okay, you're doing Qur'an too, come on, let's go. 
But the point that I want to make here is how merciful, how practical the messengers of Allah made the deen for us. It's so easy. For someone who doesn't practice the deen, they may find it difficult and complicated because new things are always difficult. But someone who's been practicing, even for a few weeks into it, you can ask them, there's no part of the deen that's actually burdensome. There is no part of the deen that's burdensome. Some parts may require a little adjusting, but burdensome is one thing and adjusting is another thing, you know? One thing is zakat is 2.5%, and the other thing is, you know, there are certain religious groups where they have zakat set in their religions for 20%. 20% is insane. That's a lot of money. 15% is insane. That's a lot of money. That's a burden there. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not burden us. 2.5% is a small adjustment into a person's, you know, if you were just to look at the finances and fit that figure in, it's a very acceptable figure. If there was a state in America that had 2.5% tax, everyone in the country would move there. I mean, it's such a simple uh, obligation put by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The next the scholars say is to purify the souls as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran to purify the souls from sins to purify the soul from spiritual illness to purify the souls from heedlessness to purify the souls from materialism as we talked about last time so the messenger also comes with that purpose and to teach people um, to convey the Quran to convey the message to the people that's another purpose of the messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala And the last purpose of the messengers and the prophets is to establish a proof against mankind so they cannot say to Allah on the Day of Judgment that we were not taught. So that mankind cannot say that we were not given a message. And so these are some of the many purposes and many message, many reasons why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent messengers to the world. Now how many prophets came in the history of mankind? This is a question. How many prophets came in the history of mankind? The scholars have debated this issue to great length. And we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says in the Qur'an, that there are some prophets who we have told you of, and there are some prophets that we have not told you. Uh, um, as Allah says in the Qur'an, there are some prophets whose stories we have not told you of. Allah said that to the Prophet So there are some prophets who we know of, and there are some prophets who we do not know of. However, there is a hadith of Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiallahu an, where he says, Qultu ya Rasulullah, I said, O Messenger of Allah, how many prophets were there? The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said, there were roughly 124,000 prophets. Fakultu. Then I said, O Messenger of Allah, how many messengers were there? The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said, there were 310, something similar to that, something close to that. 310, um, sorry, 313 messengers, Thalatha Ta'ashir, sorry, 313 messengers, more or less. So from this hadith, first of all, we know that this hadith is weak. We're going to accept that point there. But what we will also accept is that there are other narrations that support this particular narration. Hence, scholars, when discussing this issue, make this point that there are roughly 120,000 prophets that were sent to this world, and also roughly around 300 messengers that were sent to this world. Does the number of prophets or messengers really affect our faith, our practice, our pathway to Jannah in any way? No, it's just a piece of information. Therefore, using weak narrations to establish that information is okay because it doesn't have an impact on our ahkam, it doesn't have an impact on our aqidah in any way. Ultimately, when discussing the exact number of prophets and messengers, we say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Wallahu alam, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Now, who was the first prophet and who was the last prophet? By agreement of the scholars, the first messenger sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the first prophet sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was? 
Adam alayhi salam. Adam alayhi salam was the first prophet sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that in the Quran. That Adam alayhi salam made a mistake. mistake. And then he repented to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then selected him and granted him prophet. That's a rough translation of the ayat. But so Adam alayhi salam is the first Prophet sent by Allah. The last Prophet sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was who? The Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states this in the Quran in Surah Ahzab verse number 40. Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is not the father of any of your men. But he is the messenger of Allah and the seal of prophets. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has knowledge over all things. Ibn Kathir while commentating on this particular ayah, he says that in this ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us that there will be no prophet after the Prophet meaning he's a seal of prophets. So by by a greater understanding, there will also be no messenger. Because the messenger is a higher position to the Prophet. And if there is no prophet coming, that means there will be no messenger as well. So that's the first thing he establishes. The second thing, the scholars, they say that anyone that claims that they can gain prophethood after the Prophet Muhammad is outside the folds of Islam. It's because there are so many narrations in this regard. And even if there weren't, there is a clear eye of the Quran. That in itself is enough. But after even the ayah of the Qur'an, there are so many narrations from the Prophet ﷺ in this regard, that if anyone claims that they are a prophet after the Prophet ﷺ, this is very problematic and this will actually take them out of the folds of Islam. There are many people who claim prophethood during the life of the Prophet ﷺ, towards the end of it. The famous of them is Musaylima al-Kadhab, who, who was from Banu Hanifa. He was the one who claimed prophethood during the last part of the Prophet's life. And the Prophet ﷺ, when he heard his name, he said, this person is Musaylima al he is the liar. He is a liar. And people when they claim prophethood, each of them have their own agenda. You know, for some people the truth is that, you know, they're out, they're out there thinking that they can maybe create a following. And that was Musaylimah's situation. He wrote, a, he wrote a letter to the Prophet ﷺ saying that I am the messenger of Allah, you're the messenger of Allah, so whatever property you have under your rule, 50-50. That's what he wrote to the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ responded back to his letter by sending a messenger with the letter. The messenger's name was Habib bin Zayd radiallahu anh. Habib bin Zayd radiallahu anh stood in front of Musaylimah and he read the Prophet sallallahu letter to him. Min Muhammad Rasulillah ila Musaylimah al-Kadhab. This letter is from Muhammad the messenger of Allah to Musaylimah the liar. Inna al-arda lillah yurithuha man yasha'u min ibadi. This earth belongs to Allah. Allah gives it to his servants from whoever he wishes. You can't just come and say 50-50. And it's not like the Prophet ﷺ owned any of the wealth. The Prophet ﷺ, what did he do with the property? He distributed amongst the Muslimin. People benefited from it. It wasn't for his... The Prophet ﷺ didn't keep anything. Even when he passed away, he had not a penny from his... Whatever he did own, whatever little he did own, even in, was inherited by the people. His wealth was given to the Baytul Mal. To, the Baytul Mal didn't officially exist, but the people, they benefited from it. And the Prophet ﷺ 
his family did not actually inherit from the, uh, from, from the actual wealth of the Prophet Now Musaylama was a very interesting person, he was very arrogant. When he heard Habib bin Zayd call him Al-Kathab, he got so angry that he said to him, what did you call me? He said, I called you what the Prophet called you, and you're a liar. There's, not, there's no ifs and buts around it. If you're claiming to be a prophet, if someone's claiming that I'm a pious person, what do you say? Good job. Keep it up. Right? If someone says, you know, I'm the big sheikh, mashallah, keep doing it. If someone comes, claims that I'm a prophet, now what happens? You just crossed a boundary. And there's no coming back from that. Unless you make tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you can't stay on that side of the line and say that, hey, I'm still within the folds of Islam. So he called him kathab. And Musaylima got so infuriated by the statement that he said to him, take your statement back and call me by my name, Musaylima. He said, I won't. So then he cut his limbs off one by one until he made him say who he was. And each time he kept saying, you are Musaylima al-Kathab. You are Musaylim al-Kadhab until he died at the hands of Musaylim al-Kadhab. Which later on led to a very interesting uh, incident because his mother was amongst the people who killed Musaylim. His mother took an oath, Umm Ammar radiallahu anha, she took an oath that I will, set, I will settle the blood of my son that he took. And when the Muslims came in the battle of Yamama against the, uh, the false prophets, and there are multiple ins- narrations on who actually killed Musaylim. The most common opinion is that it was um, Wahshi. Wahshi radiallahu an, who was the one who killed Hamza radiallahu an as well. And Wahshi radiallahu an used to say, I killed the most beloved person to the Prophet, and I ha- killed the most hated person to the Prophet, the person who claimed prophethood during the Prophet's life. But there is another opinion that she wasn't necessarily the one who killed him, but she wounded him severely, which caused him to be killed by Wahshi. And this was Umm Ammar radiallahu anha. So this is, now another, another reason why people claim prophethood, unfortunately, unfortunately, it's because they have mental illness. And this is a reality, I'm not joking on this. People, they have mental illnesses, they become sick, and due to their mental state, then they begin to say silly things like this. If a person makes a claim like this due to a mental illness, there's no need to go to their face and call them a kafir. What's enough is to let people know that this person has an illness, and that this person should be refrained from, maybe tell their family to contain them, maybe help that person get some medical help, you know, and just deal with that issue there. There's no need to make a big problem out of it, because I've dealt with people personally in Chicago while being here for the past few years, who've told me that they are prophets. One person actually told me that they're Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that you know what, I'm Allah in the training and I'm going to claim it very soon. And I said to this person, look, I didn't laugh at that person, you know why? Because it could have been me. That's just the dead truth. If someone has an illness, we can't laugh at them at all. I said to this person, look, you have an illness right now, and I will uh, help you through this illness to the best of my ability, but I want you to know from today onwards, don't ever make that statement again. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward that individual. They refrained from making that statement again. But you know, the point that I'm making is that some people legitimately have illnesses. Now, for that person to make the claim as an ill person, is obviously not suitable, but it's beyond their control. And Allah, the Prophet ﷺ told us that the pen is lifted from three people. And one of the three people who the pen is lifted from is someone who's, 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 who's insane, someone who doesn't have control over their sanity. However, that does not give the right for people to follow that person. That person can't make the claim. It's very possible they won't even be punished by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because they're not in the right state of mind. But anyone who follows them will be held accountable by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, I want you guys to understand that issue very clearly. 
Now, um, there are many scholars who have said very clearly, for example, Qadi Iyad al-Maliki has written it in his Ash-Shifa, Imam al-Ghazali rahmatullahi alayhi has written about this thoroughly as well, that there is a consensus of the Muslim scholars. When I say consensus, I make this very clear. There is not a single scholar who I know from the Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah who has ever made a claim that there can be a prophet after the Prophet And anyone that claims this falls out of the folds of Islam. There is a famous scholar by the name of uh, Imam Abu Hayyan al-Undulusi. He is from the 5th century, from the 5th century. That's the Hijri calendar, by the way. He said something interesting. He said, وَمَنْ ذَهَبَ إِلَىٰ مُكْتَسَبَةٌ And whoever says that prophethood is attainable through one's own efforts, and that prophethood has not come to an end, and whoever claims that wilaya is fulqan nubuwa, people make this claim, they say that, hey, you know what, uh, being a friend of Allah, being a pious person, is actually a rank even above prophethood. They make claims like this, okay? He says, faqad zandaqa, tazandaqa. This person has left the, um, left the folds of Islam and he is a zindiq, and he continues on with that. Okay, so I want to make this point very clear. Once again, I'm just going to make it clear because even in our day and age, unfortunately, we've dealt with these problems and we're still dealing with them where people are claiming prophethood after the Prophet ﷺ. If someone claims prophethood after the Prophet ﷺ, unfortunately, and I don't want to be that person who's being very extreme and you know, just, you know, being very harsh, but that person no longer has the right to call themselves a Muslim. At that point, they need to figure out another religion. Find another name, start your own religion up, and then you know you do your thing. But for a person to say they're a Muslim and yet claim that there was another prophet after the Prophet ﷺ is very problematic. Hence, in the history of Pakistan, you will know that there were lengthy court cases that went on regarding a particular group who claimed a prophet after the Prophet ﷺ. And this is a very long court case that went on and on for a very long time until finally the Pakistan Supreme Court established and they give the verdict that anyone that claims prophethood after the Prophet ﷺ is out of the folds of Islam. Okay, so the, even this is a recent fatwa given not too long itself. Now there are narrations from the Prophet ﷺ regarding this. I'm going to share with you five narrations inshallah.